Shalom friends. Hey everybody, welcome back to Access. This is Timothy and I want to thank you for joining me in studying the scriptures today. May Yehovah God guide us into his truth. Quick question. What were some of the big shifts you had to make in your life? Was it migrating to a new country, getting married, getting divorced, becoming a parent? Maybe it was making a huge career change. Some people struggle when they have to shift their attitude towards somebody else. Of course, in a lot of these situations that I just listed, you probably have more time to prepare for those types of shifts before they occur. How would you respond if God called you to a situation you had no real time to prepare for? Have you ever sensed God's promptings in your life, where he's moving you in a certain direction that leaves you with so many questions, but for some reason you faithfully follow? Have you ever trusted where he's leading you? Back in my mid-twenties, I made the decision to be single the rest of my life and, and just serve God. And the year that I made that decision, God seemed to laugh at me and said, No, Tim, I have something else for you. And my eyes moved toward my friend Beverly in a way I never thought. I developed some serious inclinations toward her, and it seemed to totally be against my will because I wanted to be single and just serve God. I would never think of Beverly that way. She was my dearest, closest, lifelong friend. But God said, Tim, look at Bev. So I did. And I pleaded with God to take away the thoughts, the feelings, and, and just let things go back to how they were. And I asked God, Okay, Lord, I'm doing what you said, and things aren't going so great here. What now? And every time I prayed, I sensed his presence bringing strength, comfort, and peace. And my spirit heard him saying, Stay, wait, and watch. Before I knew it, God worked on Bev too, and she looked at me in a way she never did before, totally against her will. Then boom, we were married, and boy, did we face some big shifts. Friends, I share the story not to boast or gloat or anything like that. I share the story because I hope people will want to trust and obey Jehovah God more and more. You might think that when Bev and I got married that we got our happy ending, but quite the opposite, in fact. Our faith in God was tested to the max for the first decade of our marriage, and we're still being tested to this day. I do find comfort in knowing that a faith that has not been tested could not be trusted. This is how God grows our faith in Him, friends, by giving us opportunities to learn to trust Him and opportunities to obey Him. Our study today is called Big Shifts. If you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all of our studies under the Files tab. And also visit our website at connectionsministries.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any of our studies. As you listen today, I do recommend having a Bible handy to follow along. And I encourage you to take some time with your own Access communities and review the study together. Now let's get started. Big shifts. Today, my wife Beverly will be reading Genesis chapters 46 and 47 from the Complete Jewish Bible. Israel took everything he owned with him on his journey. He arrived at Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Yitzhak. In a vision at night, God called to Israel, Yaakov, Yaakov, he answered, here I am. 
He said, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. It is there that I will make you into a great nation. Not only will I go down with you to Egypt, but I will also bring you back here again, after Yosef has closed your eyes. So Yaakov left Beersheba. The sons of Israel brought Yaakov, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They took their cattle and their possessions which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and arrived in Egypt. Yaakov and all his descendants with him, his sons, grandsons, daughters, granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him into Egypt. Please study the genealogy of Israel's children who came into Egypt, verses 8 to 25, on your own time. Let's continue at verse 26. Yaakov sent Yehuda ahead of him to Yosef, so that the latter might guide him on the road to Goshen. Thus they arrived in the land of Goshen. Yosef prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet Israel, his father. He presented himself to him, embraced him, and wept on his neck for a long time. Then Israel said to Yosef, Now I can die, because I have seen your face and seen that you are still alive. Yosef said to his brothers and his father's family, I'm going up to tell Pharaoh. I'll say to him, My brothers and my family's family, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds and keepers of livestock. They have brought their flocks, their herds, and all their possessions. Now when Pharaoh summons you and asks, What is your occupation? Tell him, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, both we and our ancestors. This will ensure that you will live in the land of Goshen, for any shepherd is abhorrent to the Egyptians. Chapter 47 then Yosef went in and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers have come from the land of Canaan with their flocks, livestock, and all their possessions. Right now they are in the land of Goshen. He took five of his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? They answered Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our ancestors, and added, We have come to live in the land because in the land of Canaan there is no place to pasture your servants' flocks. The famine is so severe there. Therefore, Please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Pharaoh said to Yosef, Your father and brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt lies before you. Have your father and brothers live on the best property in the country. Let them live in the land of Goshen. Moreover, if you know that some of them are particularly competent, put them in charge of my livestock. Yosef then brought in Yaakov his father and presented him to Pharaoh, and Yaakov blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked Yaakov, How old are you? And Yaakov replied, The time of my stay on earth has been 130 years. They have been few and difficult, fewer than the years my ancestors lived. Then Yaakov blessed Pharaoh and left his presence. Yosef found a place for his father and brothers and gave them property in the land of Egypt, in the best region of the country, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Yosef provided food for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household, taking full care of even the youngest. There was no food anywhere, for the famine was very severe, so that both Egypt and Canaan grew weak from hunger. Yosef collected all the money there was in Egypt and Canaan in exchange for the grain they bought, and put the money in Pharaoh's treasury. When all the money in Egypt had been spent, and likewise in Canaan, all the Egyptians approached Yosef and said, Give us something to eat, even though we have no money. Why should we die before your eyes? Yosef replied, Give me your livestock. If you don't have money, I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought Yosef their livestock, and Yosef gave them food in exchange for their horses, flocks, cattle, and donkeys. 
All that year he provided them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they approached Yosef again and said to him, We won't hide from my lord that all our money is spent, and the herds of livestock belong to my lord. We have nothing left, as my lord can see, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be enslaved to Pharaoh. But also give us seed to plant, so that we can stay alive and not die, and so that the land won't become barren. So Yosef acquired all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh, as one by one the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine weighed on them so severely. Thus the land became the property of Pharaoh. As for the people, he reduced them to serfdom city by city, from one end of Egypt's territory to the other. Only the priests' land did he not acquire, because the priests were entitled to provisions from Pharaoh, and they ate from what Pharaoh provided them, therefore they did not sell their land. Then Yosef said to the people, As of today I have acquired you and your land for Pharaoh. Here is seed for you to sow the land. When harvest time comes, you are to give twenty percent to Pharaoh. Eighty percent will be yours to keep for seed to plant in the fields, as well as for your food and for that of your households and your little ones. They replied, You have saved our lives. So if it pleases, my lord, we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Yosef made it a law for the country of Egypt, valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have twenty percent. Only the property belonging to the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Israel lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. They acquired possessions in it and were productive, and their numbers multiplied greatly. Yaakov lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. Thus Yaakov lived to be 147 years old. The time came when Israel was approaching death, so he called for his son Yosef and said to him, If you truly love me, please put your hand under my thigh and pledge that, out of consideration for me, you will not bury me in Egypt. Rather, when I sleep with my fathers, you are to carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. He replied, I will do as you have said. He said, Swear it to me, and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed down at the head of his bed. Backtracking to our last study, at the end of chapter 45, Yaakov had just received the shocking news from his sons that Yosef was still alive. At some point in the sequence of events, he, quote, began to revive. Now, the wording literally notes that his heart became weak. So it's safe to understand that Yaakov had fainted and then gained consciousness again. And at the last verse, uh, 28, it reads, Israel said, Enough! My son Yosef is alive. I must go and see him before I die. And that brings us to the study today at the beginning of Genesis chapter 46. But before we get into observing that text more closely, let's just take a moment to get inside Yaakov's head at this point. What was going on in his mind as he prepared to leave Canaan, this land that was promised to them, and he's heading out to Egypt to meet his long-thought-to-be-dead son, Yosef, who is now the vizier of Egypt. Now, certainly his clan, the twelve tribes of Israel, would survive the famine because Yosef would be able to care for them. But what would be the long-term result of their migration to Egypt? What was Yaakov fearing? At this point, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 to 16. That's Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 to 16. And here we get the prophetic words given by God to Avraham. It reads, As the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell on Avraham. 
horror, and great darkness came over him. Adonai said to Abraham, Know this for certain, your descendants will be foreigners in a land that is not theirs. They will be slaves and held in oppression there for four hundred years. But I will also judge that nation, the one that makes them slaves. Afterwards, they will leave with many possessions. As for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Only in the fourth generation will your descendants come back here, because only then will the Imori be ripe for punishment. So Yaakov knew that if his taking his family to Egypt to survive the famines was the time and fulfillment of what God had spoken of to Abraham, then he would die down in Egypt. Yaakov was essentially removing his family from the promised land to become enslaved in Egypt for an extended period of time. And he knew that four centuries would pass before his family would once again be free and move back to the land promised by God to the Hebrews. Now, I'm sure that that prophecy had been passed down to him by his father and his grandfather. Uh, remember, these three were the patriarchs, um, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And God would speak directly to these patriarchs. And he actually calls out to Israel here. He says, Yaakov, Yaakov. And he answers God, Hineni, here I am. Remember, when they say Hineni and they're saying, here I am, I'm showing up, I'm giving you my undivided attention, I'm, I'm listening, speak, Lord. God addresses his fears. In verse 3, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. It's there that I will make you into a great nation. So in preparation for this big shift, this mass migration to Egypt, Yaakov stops in Beersheba, where his father Yitzhak had built an altar many years earlier. And this was most likely the same altar that Yaakov made his sacrifice to God here. You see, altars were always built and dedicated to specific gods. So when the scripture refers to an altar, it's usually called by the location that it's in, um, who built it, and which god it honored. So typically in the Middle East at this time, they believed that a god was for specific territory and um, his, his power and his reach was really only for that particular area. However, here in verse 4, we read something interesting of what God says. He says, not only will I go down with you to Egypt, but I will also bring you back here again. So Yehovah God is setting himself apart from all these other gods that are bound by territory. Um, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to go with you. I don't have to stay here. I'm going to Egypt with you and I'm going to come back and I will always be with you guys. This was huge. I mean, it must have been quite the surprise for Yaakov. And he's being assured that as he crosses that boundary line, leaving Canaan, that his God will still be with him. This was totally unheard of in this Middle Eastern cultural mindset. How can this God just change the rules? Well, Yehovah wasn't actually changing the rules because this faulty mindset is simply what kept people in bondage to their perceived reality of the way the world operates. Look at Isaiah 55 verse 8 to 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, says Adonai. As high as the sky is above the earth are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen? 
What an important reminder that verse serves even for us today. If you want to look it up again, it's Isaiah 55 verses 8 to 9. Now, as Beverly was reading the passage to us earlier, you might have noticed that she had skipped over verses 8 to 25. Now, these verses were either added at a later date or significantly modified from the original at a later time. This is what we call redaction. Uh, Something was edited into the passage. Now, why was this genealogy inserted here? And how do we know that this is a redaction? Well, uh, there's a few hints that we could pick up here. You notice that um, at this point, Yosef was in his 30s. So his youngest brother, Benjamin, he would have been in his 20s or so. And in this list, if you were to study it, it has a listing of Benjamin's 10 sons. Now, that would have been impossible for him to have sired so many children at such a young age. So that's one clue that we get. Um, Another thing is the numbers of it all. In verse 26, it tells us that all the people belonging to Yaakov coming into Egypt, his direct descendants, not counting Yaakov's sons' wives, totaled 66. So the sons of Yosef born to him in Egypt were two in number. Thus, all the people in Yaakov's family who entered Egypt numbered 70. So what's significant about 70? Well, 70 is symbolic of the totality of a cycle. It also represents universality and divine ordination. And it's very likely that there were far more than 70 individuals who went into Egypt because genealogies and censuses generally only count the males of the population. So here we have 66 males that are mentioned, but there were probably just as many females that were born, um, probably even more because of the normal pattern of birth rate. Now, it's likely that the full and complete number that went down into Egypt was closer to about 150 family members or so. In addition, any small nation of that size would also have owned foreign slaves. And we know that they had had their share of conquering over different places and and acquiring people along the way. So their number would have been quite high, probably at least 200 people or so. This just gives us a better picture of what this mass migration must have looked like. Traveling on all those Egyptian wagons that were sent for them and and all their belongings and their livestock. Nothing and nobody was left behind. Let's look at verse 28 here. Who does Yaakov send ahead of himself to Yosef? It's Yehuda, the fourthborn. Normally, this is a task for the firstborn. But there's no mention of Reuven here or Shimon and Levi. By tradition, it should have been one of those three to go first. Apparently, Yehuda assumed that role. So this tells us that there had been quite a big shift in the family dynamic as well. Yehuda is now acting as the firstborn. And finally, we see Yaakov and his family arriving for this long-awaited reunion. And Yosef immediately goes to the land of Goshen, and this place would be their new home. And we see something beautiful here. Just picture this. This touching scene where Yosef, the ruler of this great land of Egypt, humbles himself before his elderly father and weeps while embracing him for a long time. Now, Yosef went up south to inform Pharaoh in Memphis that his family had arrived down north in Goshen. 
I know that's a little confusing, but remember, there was Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. This had more to do with the elevation and, and the way that the Great Nile flowed. Um, the elevation in the south was higher, so it was referred to as Upper Egypt, whereas Goshen was located in Lower Egypt, but that was up in the north. Okay, so Yosef went up south to inform Pharaoh, who was in Memphis, that his family had arrived down north in Goshen. <laughs> it was proper protocol for Pharaoh to announce his rulings face to face with representatives of Israel. So what does Yosef do? He preps his brothers with how to respond when questioned by the Pharaoh. And this was really just a formality since, you know, Pharaoh had already decided to plan for Israel and this meeting would make it 100% official that the land of Goshen was a place to be set aside for Israel. But why Goshen? Well, Goshen provided the best land for, for shepherds to raise their flocks, right? Grazing pastures uh, where the Nile would overflow and, and water this land. And it was a lush, rich place far far away enough from all the Egyptians that actually hated the shepherds. So um, it was a good thing that they had the distance and they could kind of grow in, in peace and, and have their new home for themselves there. And that brings us to chapter 47. Before we get into it, listen to what Rabbi Hirsch has to say about when Yosef presents his brothers to Pharaoh. This is a crucial test of Yosef's character. For the viceroy of Egypt to acknowledge as his own brothers the Canaanite shepherds, who had given him every reason for repudiating them, called for highest loyalty and devotion. So Yosef goes ahead with his pre-planned agenda to formally introduce um, and announce his family's arrival before Pharaoh. And right away, Pharaoh asks their occupation. And of course, the five brothers that Yosef took with him um, to represent the whole clan and the family responded that they were shepherds and that they had come to request that Pharaoh might let them live in Egypt as the famine was so severe in their homeland of Canaan and that they could no longer live there. Now, in verse four, the brothers say, um, so please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. But the term that's used to describe the stay that the Hebrew brothers were thinking was sojourn. That's to stay temporarily, to be guests and not citizens in Egypt. Now, their father Yaakov knew that they were going to be in Egypt for quite some time. But based on their language in this exchange, the brothers either didn't believe it or they just weren't informed, right? And after all the little song and dance and the formalities here in this meeting, um, Pharaoh has this grand gesture of friendship as he offers the land of Goshen to the Israelites. Although he didn't give his response directly to the lowly Hebrew shepherds, instead the high and mighty Pharaoh turned and gave his reply to Yosef. In a separate meeting from the one that the brothers had with Pharaoh, um, Yaakov is presented to the ruler. And just imagine this, you have this humble, simple shepherd man, a refugee that's coming before this mighty Pharaoh, and he's blessing him. <laughs> this may not be as odd as it seems because there was great respect that was shown to the elderly, okay? And ancient records don't show Egyptians living nearly as long as the Hebrews did. So Yaakov, at 130, was likely the oldest man that the Pharaoh would have ever met. 
It's also funny how Yakov ends up playing off his 130 years like it's nothing because, you know, his ancestors, they lived to be much older than he. Moving on to verse 13, we see that the Israelites were settling in Goshen while the famine was getting increasingly worse. So there was no food and everybody, both all Egyptians and foreigners, they all came to rely very heavily on Yosef's stockpiled grain. You see, the land, it, it just wasn't giving much yield for food anymore, right? And, and all their money had run out already. So they, they ended up selling their livestock so that they could have grain for a year. In verse 18, after that year was up, the famine had continued and people had no more money and they had no more livestock. So what was left? All they had was their own bodies and their land. So they traded their land for food and eventually they sold themselves into the service of the Pharaoh. So as people are giving up their money, their land and their liberty, who were they dealing with here? It was Yosef, the Hebrew. So it was through all of Yosef's work that Pharaoh had gained all the land of Egypt and power of influence that's now reaching into Canaan and the Middle East as well. But what good would all that land have been to Pharaoh without anyone to work it? So Yosef goes and he has the people work the lands and he gave them seeds so that the land wouldn't become barren. And the arrangement was a 20-80 give and keep of the harvest. 20% to Pharaoh and 80% for their own households and their little ones. So this arrangement is com this arrangement is commonly called serfdom. However, in this situation, it was much closer to enslavement rather than a legitimate business transaction. So this was definitely a big shift for all the Egyptians and all the foreigners and everybody that's there. All of a sudden, they've lost their liberty and they are enslaved in Egypt. I like the way that Bible teacher Tom Bradford writes this article, How the People Viewed Joseph. Let's estimate again what Joseph must have been in the eyes of the people of Egypt and even parts of Canaan. It was Joseph's plan, Joseph's decrees, Joseph's implementations of the plan that caused the people of Egypt and Canaan to become paupers and serfs. It was Joseph's face the people saw confiscating their land and livestock. Joseph, while certainly saving their lives during that period of famine, was now their owner. He, as Pharaoh's representative, owned their lands and he owned them. This is a point at which the hatred of the Egyptians toward the Israelites began, and it was a seminal moment that began the steady path toward fulfillment of the prophecy to Abraham that his descendants would be slaves. The current Semite pharaoh, of course, could have cared less what the Egyptian people wanted, but years later, when the Egyptian people overthrew the hated foreign Hyksos rulers of Egypt and installed an Egyptian pharaoh, they were able to exact retribution for 100 years of built-up anger and envy toward these Hebrews, led by Joseph, who had taken both their land and their freedom. And that was a quote from Tom Bradford of Seed of Abraham Ministries. Well, to make matters worse, we see in verse 27 that it was at the same time these Egyptians were being forced to give up their land in exchange for food just to survive, that um, the Israelites, they were acquiring land in Goshen. And in that land that they owned, unlike the Egyptian neighbors, they prospered and grew dramatically in number. 
At the end of chapter 47 and verse 28, we see that Yaakov um, was nearing the end of his life and he sensed that. So he calls his son Yosef over and has him place his hand under his thigh. Remember that expression? Um, essentially, he's holding his genitals and and he's swearing an oath. He's, he's pledging to his father that um, when his time is up, when Yaakov dies, that he would not be buried in this foreign land of Egypt. He wanted to be collected back to the place where his father and grandfather, Abraham and Yitzhak, were buried as well, back in Canaan. But why was it so important to Yaakov that he was buried back in Canaan? I mean, it really wasn't about honor and it wasn't about nationalism. No, here this was more about ancestor worship. Okay, this is just a common understanding there in the Middle Eastern cultures that um, when you die, um, your spirit would be tended and honored by your descendants, right? And how could that happen if, if his descendants were going to go back to Canaan as God had promised and his spirit would still be in Egypt? They understood that the spirit remained where the body was, right? So if a spirit was intended to, it would come to an end and that person's essence would just kind of evaporate for all time, totally forgotten about, right? Further understanding is that the gods of each territory had rule over their own kingdoms of the dead. And Yaakov wanted to ensure that, you know, that he would be taken back to Canaan so he could live with his ancestors in a place that was ruled by Yehovah and his spirit would be properly looked after by his descendants. But before Yaakov's time was up, there were still some things, some duties that he needed to perform uh, before he passed, right? He would need to transfer the rights as the leader and ruler of the family of Israel, along with all its possessions and all its wealth, over to the one who would be the next leader of Israel. I wonder who that's going to be. Oh, and on top of that, he'd also have to dole out all the blessings and, and instructions for all 12 of his sons. And that's exactly what we're going to be covering during our next Access Learn study together. Don't miss it. We're almost coming to the close of the book of Genesis, and we only have a couple more lessons to go. Friends, there may come times when you sense God moving you in a certain direction, and it may not always be clear exactly what is going to happen. But we can learn to trust Jehovah God more as we go through those big shifts in life. Like it says in Philippians 4 verse 6, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. We could read through scripture and discover more of who he is and how he engages with his people. And remember, the holy scriptures reveal his faithful and constant and unchanging character. It's my prayer, friends, that you will come to trust God and his prophetic word and his perfect timing, and that you would come to see his divine providence at work through all the big shifts that he carries you through. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. As always, it's such a joy to be able to get around God's word and learn more about his plan and his purposes and about his amazing love and his promises. I'm so excited to see where he'll lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen. I need you To soften my heart To break me apart 
I need you. 